Those of you who didn't get the email, apparently uh, the Russians colluded with Donald Trump and with the city of Houston government and the Property Management Association, and they colluded together to prevent us from learning more about apologetics and celebrating Armed Forces Day on Saturday. So they're going to do repair work on the water main that feeds this property from 3 in the afternoon until 8 at night. So we're not having our family night, but since it doesn't start until 3 in the afternoon, men, we are having our men's prayer breakfast on on Saturday morning. But we're not going to have our, our family night on Friday night. I figure since everybody's blaming the Russians and Trump, we ought to just get either that or George Bush. But how how yesterday to blame it on George Bush when we can blame it on Trump and the Russians. The other announcement is that those who are, I don't have the announcement sheet, the, um, for those who are going to get baptized, we're going to have uh, a meeting immediately following church Sunday morning to talk about what time is best uh, for everyone. And I think that's the only thing that, uh, that I can think of. I think we have uh, Good News Club coming up what week does that begin? Do you know G- July? Third week of July. Yeah. What? Vacation. What did I say? Good News Club. Vacation Bible School. Yeah. July. Third week of July. Okay. Now shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're walking by the Spirit. If we have unconfessed sin, then we need to confess sin. Make sure we are walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, so we can uh, maximize our time in terms of spiritual growth. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness and your grace to us, for the many ways in which you provide for us, for another day, another week to study your word, to live for you, to glorify you, and to learn your word so that we can know more about you and be be prepared to uh, talk to others about the Lord Jesus Christ and to help them come to an understanding of the gospel. Father, we pray that we might have the courage, the strength, and the intellectual preparation to be able to do this. And Father, as we study tonight, help us to think through what we're talking about in terms of understanding how to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're continuing with... Elijah's confrontation of the priests of Baal. Now, what I have been endeavoring to do as we're walking through these circumstances, situations in the Old Testament, is to understand that 
that when we are talking to an unbeliever, there is a confrontation, not in a negative hostile sense, but there is a collision of thought between the believer who is thinking biblically and the unbeliever who is thinking uh, according to whatever relativistic worldview or pagan worldview that he has. And so they're not talking the same language, even though they may talk and use a lot of the same words. Sometimes, uh, especially if you're living in if you were living in 1950s, 1960s, maybe even some of 1970s America, you didn't recognize there was much of a collision because a lot of unbelievers operated on biblical presuppositions, even if they weren't believers or even if they didn't know anything about the Bible. That was part of our cultural heritage. It was part of the way that people thought. So people thought there were absolutes, even if they denied the existence of a God or a basis for for absolutes. People thought that there was right and wrong and held to views of right and wrong that were historically shaped uh, by biblical Christianity. But we're not living in the 60s and 70s anymore, and the baby boomers who went through the academic institutions of the 60s and 70s and were taught by liberals often had their faith destroyed because they didn't know how to give an answer even in their own mind for why they believed what they believed. And they felt like they were committing intellectual suicide if they believed in the Bible, believed in Christianity, and believed what their what their pastor taught. Uh, you may not have had the experience. I did to some degree, but I have heard from uh, students who have uh, gone out from churches that I have pastored that in some classrooms, students are overtly attacked for their Christian beliefs. And that was the framework for this film we were going to watch. And I encourage you, you can rent it from Amazon Prime or um, I don't think it's on Netflix. It's on Amazon Prime and and watch it. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it uh, at the end of class. But there's some interesting things that are going on in, in the film, and it's got some different, a number of different characters. It's got some interesting twists and turns. It's a, a fairly good mov- movie, but uh, when you're just watching the core story, uh, it's important to think through why this young man is saying what he is saying and how he is structuring his answer to this professor. This professor is taking a position that God doesn't exist, God is dead. And he thinks it's just nonsense to have any kind of religious belief, and so he doesn't want his students to be shackled by these antiquated ideas of believing in some old man in the sky that somehow oversees all the affairs of men, and so he wants every student to write out on a piece of paper, God is dead and then turn it in. And if everybody will do that, then they'll just be able to skip past some of that nonsense as he views it and go on to really important things in this introduction to philosophy class. Well, this one student in there who's a pre-law student has to take this class. It's a required course, and he's a Christian. So he wrestles with this a little bit, and he uh, says he's not going to do it. In fact, he writes down that God's not dead. And so the professor is going to force him to teach 
the class and to get up and give a series of lectures to try to prove that God prove his proposition that God's not dead. Now how would you do that? And that's an important thing to think through because while many of you may never see the inside of an academic classroom again, you have grandchildren or children that might, and it's important to teach them. We as a church, as a congregation, have uh, young people that are growing up, and statistics show that about 80% of evangelical kids that leave home have rejected their parents' political and religious beliefs within two months of going off to a secular university. And you may think that, well, that's not going to happen to my kid. And let me tell you, don't live in that dream world. Uh, don't, you know, the, what's the definition of a neurotic is that he builds, constructs castles in the clouds, and the psychotic is the one who moves in, and uh, the landlord is a psychiatrist. Well, don't be neurotic or psychotic. This is this is reality. I mean, it, it, and this isn't new. I mean, people in uh, the baby boom generation, this was happening. I can't tell you how many of my friends, some of whom came back, some of whom did not, but who basically had a spiritual blowout on the highway of academia, and some of them never figured out how to repair the flat. And so this is a this is a major uh, a major issue. So whenever we're talking to an unbeliever, there's this kind of challenge, confrontation that comes between two people. And earlier I used a diagram of a missionary, and thinking in the most extreme sense, a missionary like Grace Hensarling, who was here at the Chafer Conference, going off to uh, Columbia, going up into the mountains to a relatively Stone Age tribe, having to learn the language, taking years to be able to communicate, that that's a, very similar to what we are as Christians in a, surrounded by a pagan, non-Christian world. So we have to understand how to present the gospel in humility and in graciousness, as as Peter emphasizes in First Peter First Peter 3.15, that means we have to think. And there are some folks who don't do a very good job at thinking. And, uh, and that's a challenge for all of us sometimes to think. But I had a professor who, though he said a lot of things I didn't agree with, a seminary professor, he did say one thing that was quite profound. He said, but it's, if you think it's hard to think, it's very difficult to think about how you think very difficult to think about how you think. And so we have to analyze how, not only how we think, but how the other person thinks and being able to communicate to them. And so this gets where, you know, where it gets uh, a little challenging for a pastor and for people in the congregation because this isn't the normal kind of thing that you get in the motivational messages of church growth philosophy run uh, churches today, which brings up the quote I used on Sunday morning, which I still like, by Sir Lancelot Andrews, who was the chief editor and uh, major translator for the King James Version and was the pastor to King James the uh, First of England and the court. And he said, it is not our task to preach what people wish to hear, 
we could paraphrase that. It's not my job to teach what people want to hear or what they think is easy to understand. He said, it's not our task to preach what people wish to hear, but what one day in some sad future, you're going to be in some circumstance that you will wish you had heard. My job as a pastor is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And this is not easy. And I'm trying to encourage you by saying that it, it's taken me a long time. And even by teaching this again, I'm getting, you know, knocking some dust off of some areas in my brain that I haven't used in a while. And some things are coming together a little better than they have at, at previous times. So apologetics, what I think is a value in apologetics is it, it taught me how to think and how to think about thinking. John's giving me a thumbs up. That is the value of it because it, it applies to every area of life. There's not any area of life. Who did you vote for? Why did you vote for them? Why do you think they, they why do they, you like what they were espousing? What beliefs do they have? Uh, what does the Constitution mean? Why do you believe it means that? Why do you think it should be applied that way? All of those are questions that mean you have to learn how to think about those issues. And if you're a Christian, then you need to learn how to think about those Christians from a foundation, a starting point that is the Word of God. Not going off and just thinking, well, the Word of God just talks to me about my salvation and my spiritual life. But the Word of God gives you foundational principles of thought that apply to every area under God's creation. Does that include literature? Yeah. How many churches do you think in Houston even get a hint that there is a biblical view of literature or a biblical view of drama or a biblical view of poetry or a biblical view of of uh, art or music but all of that is part of God's creation and as such can be affected by the curse and as a Christian we have to discern whether something is biblical biblically grounded or not all of that is part of understanding what apologetics is it's giving a defense for what we believe and what we believe isn't restricted to just what goes on in the church on Sunday morning when we're talking directly about biblical events and biblical stories. So apologetics teaches us how to think. So we've gone through these questions defining apologetics as giving a reasoned answer for what we believe. That implies you know what you believe. That in that assumes that you can uh, somehow represent what you believe as being from the Bible and you can go to the Bible to show what it is that you believe. That's step one. Now you have to go to the next step and say, well, why do you believe it? That you, and, and I have said something for years, and people look at me and kind of scrunch up their faces a little bit, but you can't believe something you don't understand. You can't say, well, I believe it because, well, that's what the pastor said, or that's what so-and-so said. Well, that doesn't mean they're right. You have to understand faith. Faith is a form of knowledge. And to know something, you have to understand it. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to understand it thoroughly or exhaustively. I can do not understand 
the Trinity and probably never will with a finite creaturely mind. But I can understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, and because I understand what the Bible teaches about the Trinity, I can understand and believe in the Trinity. But that doesn't mean I understand everything there is to know about the Trinity. That's part of learning to what we believe and why we believe it. And that's why we should learn about apologetics. A part of apologetics that we'll get to in a couple of weeks has to do with the evidences for our faith, that we're not just parking our brain in neutral, and we're not just a bunch of people who uh, are holding on to some, uh, some religious opiate, as Mark says, that religion is the opiate of the people. We're not just using it as some drug to get through life so we don't have to deal with the real issues of life. Some people object to apologetics because they don't understand what apologetics is, but any time you answer the question, why do you believe the Bible says that, uh, that you're doing apologetics. So that's basically it, and then we've been looking mostly at this fourth question, uh, uh, the claim by some that the Bible doesn't use apologetics, so why should we? That's a fideous position, and what I'm showing you is not only how the Bible uses apologetics by looking at all these episodes going through the Old Testament and into the New, but I'm showing you that, that they all have certain things in common. And these are things that we must remember when we're communicating the gospel, trying to help people understand uh, what the Bible says. Now, we've looked at this chart a lot. As I've told you for years, there's four ways in which we know things. We know things either, historically people have said, well, it's all based on reason. It all has to conform to logic. The starting point is what's inside the mind, that we're born with certain innate ideas, and starting with those innate ideas as first principles, using lo uh, rigorously using logic and reason, we can argue from those first principles all the way out to the existence of God and truth. But there's always limitations on reason, because we don't know everything. Empiricism starts with the facts, just the facts, ma'am, evidentialism. Now, one of the weaknesses I've shown, uh, I mean, with, and that's, that's empiricism, just starting with facts, starting with sense data. Mysticism just starts with feeling, sort of a, your, your gut reaction to things. Now, each of those systems of knowledge has a counterpart in these views on our strategies for presenting the gospel and evidence for Christianity. The problem that you have with both rationalism and empiricism, this doesn't mean that in the revelational or presuppositional view that you don't use reason or logic or you don't use evidence. It's how you use it. And that's, that's where it gets a little sticky for some people. We'll try to point out some actual events of that as we go along uh, tonight. But uh, what happens here is all this gets you is probability. Probability. And there's one line that this young college boy utters as he's presenting an argument for the existence of God or presenting someone's argument is he says the existence of God is the most probable uh, reality. That's an evidentialist position. Okay? 
as a presuppositionalist, I say, no, the Bible is clear. I have to assume God does exist. It's not based on probabilities. It's based on the reality that that God has made me in his image. And Romans 1, 18 to 23 makes that very clear. That That's our foundation. So that's that bottom view. The counterpart to Revelation is the ultimate authority, is presuppositionalism. We're going to start with Scripture. That doesn't mean we start our conversation with Scripture, but that means everything that I say has got to be consistent. I'm not going to compromise Scripture by saying that there's some area of God's creation, such as either logic for the classic apologist or evidentialism, that they're saying that there's some area of God's creation that is totally neutral and unaffected by sin. Okay, that's that's a starting point. We'll look at this a little more. Everything in Scripture is to some degree polemical. That's an aspect of apologetics, is showing that Christianity is true and other positions are false. So polemics, I revised one word here, is the act of engaging in a verbal or written refutation of another viewpoint. Now, that doesn't have to be a hostile, angry refutation, but it can just be helping somebody understand that they really can't live consistently with what they say they believe. In theology, polemics describes an element in a biblical passage, I change, um, in a biblical passage, which is designed to show the superiority. Last time I had Christian theism there, it's biblical theism, because it, a lot of these passages are in the Old Testament. So we just want to use the word biblical theism, that's more accurate, to show the superiority of biblical theism over other religions and philosophies. And much of the Old Testament is a polemic against the idolatrous pagan religious uh, religion surrounding Israel, which is what we see in the passage that we're in. Now, just a quick background. Elijah had announced it wasn't going to rain until he said it would. That goes back to God's promise to Israel that if they violated the law in the second cycle of, of, uh, of, uh, of discipline, then they, God would bring a drought. That's Leviticus 26.19. This is what they've been experiencing. In the northern kingdom, they had come under the influence of Baalism due to Ahab marrying Jezebel, and she came in and brought her 450 priests of Baal and her 400 priests of of Asherah. This was just a horrific religion. It was it it, it was uh, sexually promiscuous. They had temple prostitutes. That, that, that's how you got the gods to do anything was you went down to the temple and you had sex and they had these sex orgies all over everywhere and then uh, another part of it was was human sacrifice in order to get the attention of the gods and self-mutilation all of this was was part of this religion it was destroying the culture of the northern kingdom so this is why elijah announces it's not going to rain, and then after three years, God sent him to announce that he would send rain. So he's dealing with Baal. We talked about this last time. He's the chief god in the Canaanite pantheon. He's the storm god responsible for rain, lightning, th- thunder, and productivity. So he's been impotent for three years. No rain. And so this is a direct attack. The reason it's a drought is it's a direct attack against the beliefs of these pagan pagan religions. In their mythology, drought indicated 
Baal was dead. So I love this picture here. Uh, Elijah with his sword over his head getting ready to decapitate the uh, priest of Baal. We went through this and it pointed out he does the same thing I've been emphasizing that you ask questions. And he asked the people. It's a question designed to get them to think about the ultimate reality in life. How long are you going to hop around, bounce back and forth between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. So they were assimilating Baalism to their worship of Yahweh, and they just chose to follow whomever they wanted whenever it made more sense to them and made their life a little more fun and better. And that's why he uses this word, falter, it means to hop around. Same words used of the dancing that the uh, priests are going to do in order to get Baal's attention. Now at this point, I wanted to stop. I went through this last time. Uh, I looked at the video last time and realized that the slides didn't show up very well, so I had to change the slides. Um, But see, the issue here is in the confrontation, the point isn't to win the argument. The point is to move people to change to get them to understand that their views are wrong and they need to conform to God. The goal is to get people to trust in Christ as Savior and to help them understand that whatever it is they're relying on is a broken cane. I think Isaiah used the word broken reed, but I've updated it to our culture. You've got a broken crutch and it's not going to hold you up. And so part of what we do you do is to as you ask questions is to help expose uh to the person that what he's depending on for happiness or meaning in life or success really ultimately doesn't get him what he thinks it will get him now that that doesn't you don't get into that with everybody but you do with some people so i ran through these principles everyone has a philosophy of life Some of them have thought it through. Others just, you know, they just bounce around with a lot of inconsistent views as long as whatever makes helps me get through today is all I need to worry about. They haven't thought about things very deeply. (coughs) Second point, every worldview or religion contains universals. These are expressed by words like should, ought, right, and wrong. Get in a discussion with anybody about whether or not... um, Donald Trump colluded with the Russians, they're going to say, well, I think it's wrong, or I think it's right. As soon as they use a word like right or wrong, you've got a window into their soul. Where did you get that value? How, how do you think that's wrong? Well, I, I think it's wrong to, to uh, say that, that there's only one way to God. Really? Well, how do, you, how do you come to that view? You can talk about that a lot. That'll expose a lot of ideas, okay? So the entry point to their worldview is going to be often through their statements related to their values or their ethics. Now, this this is when you get into a longer-term conversation. There's short-term conversations and long-term conversations. But remember, even if you have to talk to somebody for 30 years before they finally have that aha moment, that's a person that's going to spend eternity in heaven instead of the lake of fire, and that's worth every bit of aggravation and and all the ups and downs for those 30 years. So fourth point was that ethical principles are based on prior assumptions about the nature of truth or knowledge 
and ultimate nature of the universe. That's something to think about. This is where we get into that hard discussion about how do you, th- why, how do you think? How do you think about what you think? It's not easy. So in the past, as I pointed out last time, I went and got the slide for this time, we've got this iceberg illustration. At the top, it may be uh, talking about political decisions or national issues. It may be individual life choices. But this is where we talk with people is, you know, how's your day going? Oh, well, I'm not doing so good a job. My, My boss is a real jerk. Really? Why is that? You know, you start asking questions. Or I had a client, they wouldn't pay me. Um, Well, what are you going to do about it? What do you think about it? Probe, ask questions. Well, I think it's terrible. Why do you think it's terrible? What's your ultimate value? Where do you get this idea of right or wrong? Uh, You believe in the survival of the fittest? Where do you get an ethic that says that it's wrong for the fittest to... uh, Take advantage of the unfit. Where do you get that idea? And so you start, you know, probing a little bit. That's where we begin to talk. But as soon as you start asking right or wrong questions, you get down into ethics. Where do you get these ideas of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad? Well, I don't believe there's such a thing as absolute truth. But that that doesn't work for me. So you get into this issue of how do you know what is true? Now, this is really important for believers because at the ethical level, Christians hold to views that certain things are right or certain things are wrong. And we're not going to violate our beliefs just because the government says so. And the government comes along and says that it's okay for same-sex couples to get married. And as a Christian, you're like, no, I, don't, I can't validate that. That violates my conscience. Paul said we're not to violate our conscience. It sets a principle for future violation of things that are really serious. So um, we're, we're, we have ethics. And how do we know it's true? Jesus said things about truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Claim to be truth. Later on when he's talking to Pilate, uh, Pilate asked him if he uh, claimed to be God, and he said, it's the, uh, you speak the truth. And then Pilate said, well, what is truth? So Jesus clearly affirmed there's an absolute truth. So for Christians, truth is an issue. And we need to think about how do we know truth? Where does truth come from? And so that takes us to the next level. Now, these terms, ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, these are terms that come out of philosophy, but whether we're talking about God, truth, or right or wrong, it's the same thing. Where do you get your views of of knowledge? What is true? What is false? Where does that come from? Does it come from just within the creation? Is this just something that people voted on? Or are there universal absolutes that are right or wrong, no matter what people believe. And that has a lot of implications. So the foundation for all thought is this understanding of, of God, ultimate reality. Now, if ultimate reality is a God who encourages people to go through sexual activity in order to stimulate him to improve the economy, then that's going to impact what you do and what you think about right or wrong. 
And it's going to impact how you think about marriage and the sanctity of marriage, and it's going to impact how, how you think about uh, about all of these issues related to sexual morality. And ultimately, that is going to impact your view of whether that is related to success or prosperity. Now, in the ancient world, they were just as concerned as you and I are with financial stability. They were concerned about success. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with uh, having possessions. There's nothing wrong with being productive in life. But when that takes over and that becomes the end in itself, then that is classified in Scripture as covetousness or greed, which Paul says in Colossians 3 is idolatry. So you may say, well, we're not worshiping some sort of, you know, sexually promiscuous God, and we're not going down to the temple and engaging temple prostitutes. They had male and female prostitutes for men and women, worked both ways. And uh, so, so we don't do that. Well, if you're running on materialism as a motivator in life that you think that you have to get all you can get so that you can survive and not trust God, then you're just as guilty of prosperity theology as the Baalists were or the prosperity evangelists on television. So you have to think about how these things relate to each other. So rarely do people think at the level of how do my values, how do my decisions relate to what I think about God? And that's the brilliance of Christianity is because Christianity, our presupposition is we worship a God who created everything. Every fact is what it is because God made it that way. And therefore, we can't go in and try to think about it in some other way. Because that's idolatry. That's saying that we have the ability to redefine what God made. So we have all of God's creation, and we need to learn to understand it as God created it, and then live consistent with that. That's called uh, that's called wisdom. So we Bible study isn't just about learning old stories about people who lived thousands of years ago, and don't they have some nice little morals for us? It's learning how we are to live and think within a creation that where every molecule is designed by an infinite holy creator, and we have to learn to live in a corrupt version of that and we have to deal with it in terms of our own sin nature and that God is in a process of redeeming it. So that's our framework. Now, last time, I set it up a little differently. I said we start with this window, ethics, values, right or wrong. So Elijah is going to this culture, to the Israelite culture, and they think it's right that you can go out and you can have promiscuous sexual relations with temple prostitutes in order to be financially prosperous and your your crops will grow and you'll be productive. And the more you go down to the temple and engage in sexual activity, the greater chance it's going to rain. And they believe that with every ounce of their being. So you have to challenge that idea of right and wrong at the beginning. Where are you getting this? That's what his question's getting at. Now that eventually, if you go to the next level takes you to the area that's not in the um, iceberg chart, 
where the implications of right or wrong in ethics affects what philosophers refer to as aesthetics, which is literature, music, art, nature, all of these kinds of things. I'm not spending much time talking about that. For ethics to work, it has to come from somewhere. It comes from knowledge, and that comes from that ultimate reality of God. So we're starting with God at the top in this diagram and working our way down. Your ultimate view of reality affects what you know. What you know affect, in your understanding of truth affects your values, and that affects politics. It affects civil, the civilized aspects of culture, art, music, literature, uh, theater. All of these things are products of man. And man is what? He's a corrupt version of the image of God. So we, as Christians, we have to address that. So all these things go together. So in that culture, if you're Elijah, what are you thinking? What's, what's the collision points here? How are you, uh, as Elijah confronting the priests of Baal, how are you as a college kid in a hostile classroom going to confront an, argue, confront an atheist professor and present a case for the existence of God. When you look at what's going on in the contrast, what I'm doing here in this chart is this in the upper right is expressing what the bi biblical view is. The divine viewpoint, the Bible gives us absolutes, non-negotiable absolutes. That's where we stand as Christians. As Martin Luther said, here I stand, referring to the scripture, I can do no other. The, we believe God revealed his essence as the creator, we're the creature, we're in his image. That's, that's where we're going to get our values. God reveals right and wrong. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. His righteousness expresses the absolute eternal values, uh, eternal standards of his character, and his justice expresses the application. But when you deny God... And all you're left with the creature, the creature makes it up. So it becomes arbitrary. The creature is going to determine what right or wrong is. You can see this especially in governments and in politics where the governments come along and they're just going to make up the rules. We see a classic example of it right now. I'm not arguing in favor of Trump or in favor of the Democrats, but what is happening right now is that you, you see that the standards that are being applied to Trump are, are such that if they were applied to uh, an investigation of Hillary, the Democrats would be screaming that how unfair this would be. It's a double standard. Why? Because when you, get, when you lose your anchor in a system of absolutes and righteousness then the law doesn't apply equally to everybody. And it's all about who has the power. And that's what's happening here. So in the ancient world, they had a priest-based power. And the priests who ran the northern kingdom are being fed at the table of Jezebel. They are, it's a state religion. And so they are, uh, th th that's a state base. But today we have a politics base. In the er 20, early 20th century, you had the rise of these horrible 20th century totalitarian governments, uh, the communists under Lenin and Stalin, Nazis, Hitler, Mao, others, 
uh, Cambodia, all kinds of horrible dictators who were violent, destructive, dehumanizing the ancient world. They had human sacrifice and temple prostitution. You know, the Nazis had a human sacrifice. It's the Holocaust. These kinds of things flowed out of their view of God. So if you don't have a God, if you don't have the God of biblical Christianity, not just any God, but if you don't have the God of the Bible, then that's where it goes. See, the difference, and if you're thinking about a classical or evidentialist apologetics, they get you to a God. There must be a God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is a holy, righteous God. Okay, that's the distinction. And so the God that we believe in as Christians is a specific God who has specific, a specific essence. If you don't have that God... If you have Allah, who justifies jihad and, you know, all kinds of homicide bombers and everything else, if you don't have the kind of God that you have in the Bible, then you're going to end up over here, one way or the other, because that's where your assumptions eventually lead you. Now, in this next chart, where do you get your values? If you're operating on the Bible, you get them from the from the Word of God. God reveals truth. That's what he was doing with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's revealing truth to them. It's absolute knowledge. It's not based on trial and error of empiricism. And it's derivative. What do I mean by derivative? It is derived ultimately from God because there's not one thing you or I or Einstein or Da Vinci or uh, Stephen Hawking can discover in this world that God didn't know about fully and thoroughly billions and billions and billions of years ago in eternity past. Everything we discover about God's creation, God already knew about and never learn he never learned it he he has always known it his knowledge never increases or decreases there's nothing that he he grows in knowledge so everything that we learn ultimately was in the mind of god before anybody came along and before anybody discovered it we're just rediscovering what god has already known so we look at knowledge differently or we should than the way anybody else looks at knowledge. In human viewpoint, all knowledge is just what you derive through observation, but in empirical observation, there's always something you can discover next year that it validates everything you thought you knew today. So it's always, it's inductive, it's relative, there's no absolutes. That's why the postmodern is absolutely correct based on his assumptions. If there is no God, I think it was Dostoevsky who said this, if there is no God, everything is permissible. Think about that. If there is no God, everything is permissible. You don't have any values. So every, all knowledge is relative. You can't know anything with certainty. And then God at the top, the challenge is Yahweh versus Baal. And the issue is, is God the creator God of the universe, or is he uh, part of the universe, which is how every pagan, pagan system had it? 
So as we look at the challenge, this just gives you the background. What are the mental dynamics that are going on here in this confrontation between Elijah, who wants them to change? He's not saying, I've got a better idea. My God is better than your God. My religion is better than your God. No, he's arguing my God is the only God, and your God doesn't exist. Your whole life is built on something that is fabricated, and it won't hold you up. And the only way you're going to be held up and secure in life and have real prosperity is if you align yourself to the God who created everything and walk ethically, morally, spiritually, according to what he has said. Because if you don't, then you are setting yourself against reality and your life will fall apart. Okay, so Elijah challenges them. He says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Uh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And that's in 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, 22. There's 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah. And he challenges them. Uh, as he did in, um, uh, he, he goes on, he says, But Baal's prophets, 450 men, verse 22, Therefore let them give us two bulls. We're going to put this to a test. Now this is something that is a is typical in a number of different presentations of, of uh, we'll call it apologetics, but of confrontations with human viewpoint. Without compromising his view of God or revelation, what Elijah is doing is saying, okay, let's see if what you believe really does, if you can live consistently with it. And he's going to, there, there's two aspects to giving an answer for the faith. One aspect is the positive where you're saying what we believe, but somebody may say, well, I just don't believe that's true. Really? Well, what do you believe is true? And then begin to talk about their answers and being able to expose that they can't live consistently with their answers. Okay, so that involves some thinking on our part and a lot of prayer. So this is what Elijah is doing. He's saying, you believe your views? So let's, let's, let's test it. So let them give us a couple of bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but I won't put any fire on it. So they've got two altars. They've built these. They're quite large. And this is a drought time. So the Kishon River is down here. Now it's just a stream because so much gets bled off into uh, irrigation in the uh, Esdralon Valley. And that's a pretty good hike. You're looking downhill. I don't know. It's probably about seven or 800 feet above the uh, ground so they've got to go down and haul these containers of water up to the top here's here's another view looking down uh, to the Kishon River now back in those days there was a lot more water there so even in a drought it would probably get to where it is today but they had a lot more water Judges 6 talks about how this hit a flood stage and God used brought a flood that helped destroy the Canaanites 
um, under Deborah and Barak in their battle with the uh, with Sisera. So he confronts challenges, their human viewpoint assumptions. He says, you then call on the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. In other words, you see if you can consistently live on the basis of your atheistic presuppositions. Okay, I often tell this joke that, that this is like the, the, the uh, evolutionist in the lab who can finally create life. And so he says, we don't need God anymore. I'm going to challenge God. Uh, tell him we don't need him anymore. We can create life. He can go away. So he goes and he challenges God. We're going to challenge you to, uh, uh, we don't need you anymore. Uh, we, don't, we can create life on our own. We don't need you anymore. And God says, okay, okay, well, you challenged me. So, so you start first and uh, you show me what you can do in creating life. And so the scientist uh, bends down and he picks up some dirt and God says, no, no, no you got to make your own dirt. Their starting point doesn't work. They don't have any dirt. They're just trying to create life, and, and they're using God's dirt. And so that's what Elijah is basically showing here is that uh, they don't have the foundation. They've just created a God, a religious system, but there's no foundation in reality. So he's going to show that their system just, just won't work. So they go through all these gyrations, they dance around, they cut themselves, uh, Elijah taunts them, uh, says, well, maybe, maybe your God's taking a break. And at noon, verse 27, so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he's a God, maybe he's meditating, he's busy or on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping. Is it godly to mock the unbeliever? Oh, that's wrong. What are you going to do with that statement? You're talking to some snowflake millennial. Oh, that's wrong. God, Elijah told me we couldn't worship a God like that. Well, really, where did you get the idea that that's wrong? You know, what if somebody's eternal destiny in the lake of fire is at stake? Are you going to rescue them from that or because it might hurt their feelings that they believe the wrong thing, or are you going to let them spend eternity in the lake of fire? Because now you see what you've done is you've shifted, and you're taking the context and putting it into a biblical context. We're not arguing probabilities. We're, we're showing the contrast in the belief system. So anyway, so they go through all of this, and then after midday, they go through it in the afternoon, to the evening sacrifice and nothing happens and I mean they're just getting upset they're dancing they're worn out nothing has happened and so um, when we get down to verse 36 at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice around six o'clock in the evening Elijah comes out and he says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're God in Israel and I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. And so starting in verse uh, uh, prior to this, what he's done is he's built the altar, he's built a trench around the altar. Uh, it's large enough to hold two theas of seed. That's a couple of packs of seed. So, so he's going to go down, get enough water to soak his wood 
and enough's going to run off into this trench to where he has about two barrels or so of water left over. And then he calls on the name of the Lord to bring down fire from heaven. And in verse 37, in a simple prayer, no gyrations. He doesn't have to jump a pew. He doesn't have to uh, uh, wave his arms. He is just going to simply pray to God, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. That's the point of this conversation and the challenge when you're defending the faith is to bring people to an understanding of the truth to turn to God. And so then we have it. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Everything, it, it just immediately vaporized. What a contrast. Now, the legend in Israel is that this bolt of lightning, I mean, the, the thunderclap must have been incredible that this bolt of lightning could be seen from all over Israel, that this wasn't something that was done uh, in secret. And so it licks up all the, everything is just, just vaporized. And I had a couple of pictures taken at that time just so we would have them in, in Bible class. So what this shows is that the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just any God. See, he's not arguing for the existence of this God. He's assuming the existence of God. He's not arguing for it. He's not trying to prove it through the argument of cause to effect, the cosmological argument, or the anthropological or moral argument or ontological argument or any of those other things. He just sets up this scenario where the people must confront their beliefs and live consistently with them. And he shows that they can't. That is one aspect of apologetics. And he does this with humility and fear. Now, that's interesting because we don't see Elijah, this is humble, but remember, this is the same kind of word, same word group that's used to describe Moses as the most meek man in the Old Testament. And it shows authority orientation. That's what humility is, as I've taught you many times. So it's rec and that authority orientation, what's the authority? It's the Word of God. He's not saying, okay, we have some neutral area we're going to appeal to in terms of human reason or culture or something else. He takes his stand on, on the Word of God. That doesn't mean that he's, he's spouting Scripture all the time. So there's eight things that we learn from this. First of all, that all people have a religious system demonstrating, which demonstrates the truth of Romans 1, 18 to 23. That person we're talking to, no matter how much of an atheist they are, they are religious. And, and whether they, they like you or not. See, theism is a religion. If theism is a religion, then the opposite of theism must also be a religion. The belief that there is no God must be a religion if the belief that there is a God is a religion. That's just logic. So because we understand total depravity, we know that people are not spiritually neutral. 
that's why it's a bit of a confrontation. We know that the person is trying to suppress the truth. They don't want to face up to something like divine judgment. That is not part of their, um, their game plan. Third, we've seen that the purpose of the confrontation is to change their mind about God, not to prove that Elijah's right and they're wrong. This isn't about intellectual ability or debater's technique. Like we've seen previously with Job and with God in the garden and also with uh, Moses going to Pharaoh, uh, it begins with a question, probing. What do, they, um, uh, what do they believe? What are they going to do? And he's asking that question to expose the real issue and to challenge them to obey. Fifth, there's evidence presented here. They were able to evaluate the evidence despite a prior commitment to suppress truth. That means that there's, they're not completely blinded in the sense that, that um, God has to regenerate them before they can believe. That's a problem with, with hyper-Calvinists. Uh, they, they have enough uh, uh, intellectual ability to be able to understand what's going on uh, even though they're su- committed to suppressing truth. Six, the evidence is not treated as neutral. Now, that's important. He's not saying, okay, history is neutral. You and I can both look at history the same way. He's not doing that. This is God. He, this is what God does. God is the God of lightning. He's the God of thunder. He's the God of prosperity. He's the God of life, not Baal. We see that God uses historic facts and evidence to, supr- to expose their sin and rebellion. We can do the same thing. That's why in the coming weeks I'm going to talk about evidences, and there's all kinds of evidences. There, there's so much that's coming out, so much we can read, but I want to try to boil things down to a really simple, um, really simple uh, thing that, that I can uh, say, okay, give me five basic reasons why I can trust the Bible. Give me five basic reasons why I can believe Jesus is God. Give me five basic reasons why uh, I can believe in the resurrection. You know, just something really simple like that that we can use, get into our heads, and will come to our minds when, uh, when we're witnessing to somebody, if we need that. And we don't always need that. And then we have to recognize that the reaction may be quite hostile. We can put it on the line, but it may cost us something. This kid in the film, it may cost him his his academic career. It may it cost him his girlfriend. It cost him. Um, it, it could have cost him uh, more than that. But we have to be willing to do what we're supposed to do as believers. Are we willing to obey no matter what the cost? Elijah obeys, and after he has a little little running contest with Ahab, uh, Ahab uh, beats him and gets back to Jezebel and informs Jezebel about everything Elijah has done and that he had executed all of her favorite little prophets with the sword. He's up there. He's massacred all 950 of those false prophets and taken them out. And so now she's... What's she going to be? Is she going to be pleased? Well, I'm glad we finally understood the truth. 
I'm glad that we have seen the light and that Yahweh is is the God we should worship because she is committed to finding ultimately finding the truth. No, she's exposed, she's not spiritually neutral. She's a truth suppressor and she's going to react in anger. And so then we see something interesting. Notice the inconsistency here. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me. Wait a minute. Do you get the inconsistency there? Let the gods do to me. What did Elijah just demonstrate? There are no gods. Not only are there no gods, but I've killed a lot of his prophets. And there's nobody that's going to help you talk to Baal anymore. So she, she, this is the irrationality of unbelief. Let the gods do to me and more also, if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And then Elijah does what a lot of us do when we witness to somebody and they didn't immediately trust Christ. He goes on a pity party and he runs away to the Sinai to hide from Jezebel after God has provided for him so much by the brook Kareth. And then when he went to the widow of Zarephath, and God just demonstrates his power. And what does he do? Just like the rest of us. That's why James says he's a man of like nature as us. Because we can fall into that same trap. And all of a sudden, one minute, we're believing God. And the next minute, we're living as if God doesn't exist. So this is our, our evidence of what we learn about the confrontation. Now, I want to bring up a couple of points before we leave about this film. Because I'd like for you to watch it. If you can, rent it. I was going to show, I've got it tubed up on my computer and I was going to show up. I thought, you know, we're probably going to run into some copyright issues, uh, even though I'm just showing clips at places. And it would be okay if it was just us. But live streaming and putting all of these clips up on the, on the website would probably get us in trouble. So I'm just going to have to talk my way through it. The situation, as I said at the beginning, is that this college kid is in a classroom where the professor is demanding that everybody write, God is dead. And then they can go on and we can all have a happy semester because we don't have to worry about God rearing his head in our classroom and waste our time talking about this myth. So the professor is using a combination of peer pressure, a combination of ridicule, and... Um, uh, to intimidate the students to do what he says to do. And everybody does it except for this one young man. And as a result of his, his unwillingness to do it, he gets even more threats from the professor who threatens to destroy his academic career. He'll fail him in this class. That'll make sure he can't succeed in his desire to uh, go on to law school and everything else. He's got a girlfriend he's dated for six years, and, and she's telling him, just get the grade and move on. Don't make an issue out of this. And he says, but I can't sign the paper. And the question that we have for many of us is, is what are we, what would we do in that kind of a situation? Because as Jesus points out to his disciples, uh, when he is giving them their commission to go to the house of Israel and house of Judah in uh, Matthew chapter 10, he told them, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, 
I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about about rewards. There's other places where that language is used. But it's this, the whole issue here is on being a faithful disciple. Jesus goes on to say, He who loves father and mother more than me or his girlfriend more than me is not worthy of me. That was a textual emendation there about the girlfriend. It's in some rare manuscripts. Uh, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to cause a problem by bringing up my Christianity. Well, you may do it in a wrong way, and that's wrong, but if you've you got to think about doing it in the right way. And Jesus then said, He who does not take his cross and follow me, that is, who isn't willing to submit to the Father in all things, Taking up your cross was an idiom in the Roman Empire for submitting to the authority of Rome. And then he goes on to say, um, in verse 41, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, he starts talking about there's, there's a reward if you stand in the gap, stand up, and you don't deny him. Well, this young man is put in that situation. Everybody seems to desert him, but as he talks to his pastor, he realizes that he's in a position where he can provide a solid witness for the Lord in that classroom, and so he starts doing his homework. What would you do if you're placed in a position where to survive at all, you need to defend your position that God is not dead. What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? Well, you can look at his approach. First thing he does, he comes out, gives a lecture, and he says, we're going to put God on trial. And so the way he can do this a right way or a wrong way, I think he does it a wrong way, gives, I mean a right way gives us a good example. He sets up a contrast between biblical view of origins and pay an evolutionary view view of origins he doesn't put, look for some area of neutrality what he's doing is he's showing that ultimately the evidence shows that evolutionary theory of origins doesn't work and that ultimately and he has some good quotes and as he does this he shows various inconsistencies in the big bang theory which is a relatively new theory contrasts it with the steady state theory uh, which is a long pagan view, uh, but he con contrasts that and he shows that, that modern science uh, really can't be consistent with what they, uh, what they hold in terms of the, the Big Bang theory. That, and he read a quote from a scientist, well-known scientist, who's stating what a Big Bang would look like, and then he said, let's look at Genesis 1. God spoke and it came into existence. How does that differ? See, he hasn't gone to a neutral. He's saying biblical Christianity presents our God this way. He spoke and it instantly came into existence. How does that differ? The difference is there's an intelligent being. There's God who's doing that. So he answers that. The professor challenges him with a... Uh, a question uh, with a quote from uh, from Dawkins, who says that um, uh, you know, okay, so you say that there's a God there. Well, who created God? And he turned it back 
on on Dawkins. He said, well, Dawkins has to answer the same question, which is ultimately who created the matter that that was there to explode at the beginning of the Big Bang? See, he can't answer that question. So he's not getting trapped into looking for uh, an area of neutrality. He's uh, challenged uh, by the professor with a quote from Stephen Hawking. He came back the next day with a with not only a statement from an atheist philosopher who said that basically uh, Hawking commits three logical fallacies in his statement that the universe could self-create itself because it thought it needed to come into existence. And uh, by giving this quote from an atheist, he's showing the fallacy that's there in, in, in their argument. But also, he then quoted a statement from Hawking in the same book who said, a professor to his, remember, this is a philosophy professor, Hawking later in the book said, philosophy is dead. <laughs> so what he's doing is he's showing the inability of the Baal worshipers to live consistently with their presuppositions. So it's very, very well done in, in that, that respect. So he does that a few other times, and what he does is he will contrast to what the Bible says. The, the one weakness I saw in it was that at one point, as he's talking about the existence of God and the arguments for the existence of God, he says that this gets the most, pro the most probable answer is that God exists. That's, that's where he sort of steps out of a more consistent presuppositional uh, approach. He addresses the problem of evil and some other things. And at the end, he gets the, the he says a press, why do you hate God? Why are you so angry with God? Why do you hate God? And the professor is just, just so a angry and because, because God doesn't help people. And the kid just looks at him and goes, how can you hate somebody so much who doesn't exist? And what he's doing, he's pointing out the inconsistency. So that's the, the two sides of the coin that I'm talking about. Part of apologetics is being able to help people understand the flaws in their own rationale. And the other is provide, showing how the Bible is internally consistent and we can trust uh, the God of the Bible. And so it's, uh, it's interesting. One factoid that I got out of it that I didn't know was that 70% of self-admitted atheists in this country were once Christians. Of that 70%, 34% of the, of the total number were formerly Roman Catholic, 36 and a half or something like that was, was uh, non-Roman Catholic, were Protestants. So what you see is a lot of Christians get angry with God over something personal. That's what was exhibited in this in this film. His mother had died when he was uh, 11 or 12 years old, and God didn't answer his prayers to keep her alive, so he was mad at God. And that that kind of thing can come out when you're talking to people. Well, why, why don't you believe in God? Why are you so upset? Why are you so angry? You're getting down to those, to those issues that are, uh, that have been used you're getting past the suppression mechanisms to get to the real issues. That's really, you know, that's the whole point in apologetics, learning how to talk to people 
present the gospel and show this the that biblical truth is the only truth okay we'll come back and look at paul next time in um, lystra and also at um, in Acts 17 on areopagus mars hill father thank you for this opportunity to look at these things tonight again helping us think through how to think and how to think under pressure when we're talking to somebody in a dialogue a lot of times we've all experienced it we just don't think of things that we should have said or would have said or could have said because we just get too emotionally involved and we don't think of it till the next day or the next week but helping us to to talk to people about the gospel and what to believe and to be able to present the gospel just as if we were a missionary in some some foreign pagan society in a way that that focuses on the truth of your existence and the truth of redemption and understanding the need for redemption. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.